Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Stay tuned for the Thursday Morning Report. This morning I will be your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I will be joined by Harrison Coeli uh, of the Red Pill Press. We'll be discussing Andrew Labasowski's book, Political Ponerology. Uh, why do so many psychotic people seem to get into positions of power? Uh, and then do terrible things. Hey, Harrison, are you there? Yes. Am I butchering your last name, or is that is that correct? Well, uh, I wouldn't say you're butchering it, but it's, uh, it's pronounced Kaylee. Kaylee. Okay, perfect. Uh, and you are from the Red Pill Press and one of the editors of the book, Political Ponerology. Yes. Uh, can you just take a few minutes to give an overview of what ponerology is? Sure. Well, the book itself was written... Um, the, in the form that's published now, it was written in 1984, and so it was left unpublished for about 20, 22 years, and it was written by a psychologist uh, named Andrew Lobachevsky. Um, he was Polish, and the the book itself is kind of a summary and the, the culmination of all the research that he and his colleagues in several Eastern European countries conducted in the 50s, 60s, and 70s uh, during the Soviet governments of that time. And what ponerology means, the the word it comes from, is the Greek poneros, which means evil. It's one of the words, uh, one of the old Greek words for evil. And so what the scientists, um, Andrew Lobachevsky and his colleagues, were doing at the time was they were trying to get an idea of what was going on in their country. Because up until a certain time, um, before the before the Nazis um, invaded and killed a whole bunch of people and basically took over and destroyed Polish society at that time, you know, things were going a certain way. The There was certain knowledge taught in the universities. And then when the Nazis came, things changed. And that was only, for, that was only sped along and... Um, and continued by the Soviets when they took over. And so they realized something strange was going on, something that was very foreign, not not foreign in the sense of from another country, but something foreign to their just humanity in general. There, it was this, this kind of anti-human system that had taken over. And so they decided to study it from a, a scientific perspective. And being psychologists and sociologists, um, and medical doctors, a lot of them, they took the approach of of researching it and seeing it from the perspective of psychopathology or pathology. And so that's really the approach they take is to say what kind of pathologic pro- processes are going on, who are these people, um, what 
what are the processes that allow it to happen, that allow it to, to, to continue on and to progress, and ultimately, what can we do about it? Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting things for me, reading just even in the introduction, he was discussing how uh, at the university that he worked at, uh, the new dean, the new professor that was his boss, was basically a, a propaganda master uh, that was kind of telling them what they needed, how they needed to think and, and what they needed to teach. And then he describes how suddenly a, a, just a few, like a small percentage, really, of the people that he worked with just took it hook, line, and sinker and started to follow what this guy was saying. And I, I, that was the interesting thing was the way that he was analyzing how even just convincing this small percentage of the people uh, to follow this kind of a system, then suddenly they were able to really control the whole mass of the population. Yeah, that was, that was really the event that spurred him on to, to all of this research was that observation that a small percentage of the people, no matter how seemingly ridiculous or illogical what this professor who wasn't even a professor, he'd, he hadn't, or I think he'd just had a high school education, and all of a sudden he's teaching a university. Um, so when that, when that happened, they, they realized that, or Andrew realized, that you know, some, something odd was happening. How, why were these specific people reacting in this way, and why were, why were most of his friends not? And what, what, what was it that differentiated the friends that did kind of take it hook, line, and sinker. And so that was the, the starting point. And after that, they realized a whole bunch of things. And that was that, um, first of all, the professor was a psychopath. He, then they basically, you know, they could identify him because the, these are the things that they were, they were taught and that they knew. Um, and it was going on in the schools, basically, before the, so, before the Soviets kind of totally derailed the education system and put an embargo on certain subjects. So they knew that this guy was a psychopath, and so they were able to see that what kind of effects a psychopath will have on the, the whole range of human types. And so a lot of, like Andrew and, and his friends, they'd react with kind of these neurotic reactions. They they kind of, they, like, it was like descending in, I think he describes it, I can't remember his exact words, but kind of descending into this murky fog. Like they couldn't think straight. They, they lost their sense of community and like camaraderie and um, and so they really just entered into this murky like depressed state and that's that's actually the reaction that a normal person has to the influence of a psychopath they they basically have this stress reaction that basically just shuts them down but on the other hand there are other types in society, like society and humans in general are very varied. Um, like we all have certain things in common, but there, there's a small minority, and this was the minority that Wobachevsky identified, that have certain psychopathologies. Now we'd call them um, personality disorders these days, and that would include like psychopathy um, and, or certain types of brain damage that affect like psychological functioning. So that can be um, brain damage in your frontal lobes or different parts of the brain that just, um, they kind of rewire the, the thinking and thought processes a little bit so that, or maybe not a little bit, but to, to the point where certain, first of all, like in, in uh, frontal, with frontal brain damage, um, Certain processes get sped up and certain certain get hindered. So there's a, a real lack of um, inhibition, um, a real lack of 
being able to control your emotions. So, so, so all of these different ki- kinds of psychopathologies are very easily like that's what acts as the hook, and and so the people kind of come out of the woodwork, and that's the kind of first stage is these people coming out of the woodwork, mm-hmm. and if a society isn't prepared and doesn't know what's happening. The, that group is the one that just continues to rise to positions of power to the point where an entire system is entrenched from the very heights of leadership down to every like single community. Any 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 leadership position all along that hierarchy will be dominated by a certain type of individual, and so even though they're a minority, that's how we're able to get systems of government where where that tiny minority has such. Um, such immense power and control it doesn't it doesn't seem very um, it, it doesn't really seem to make sense when you just look at the numbers but when you realize the psychological processes that these individuals um, psychopaths in, in particular have such a, an effect and they're so energetic and skillful at manipulating that they get in these positions of power very easily and then they know how to keep them they know how to manipulate people to 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 keep those positions and then the the mass of people who usually just goes along with the flow, doesn't want to rock the boat until po- things reach a certain point, um, until things get so bad that they realize something has to be done. And so that's what you see at the, the fall of the Soviet Union. And that's what we're seeing um, all over the Middle East right now with the revolutions in Libya and Egypt. And even in a even in an American context, like what's what going on in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. it gets to the point where the people realize something's wrong. They don't necessarily know exactly what the nature of it is, why it's wrong, or what the specific causes are. They just they just know that something doesn't feel right, something's not going right, and that's that's what it inevitably comes to. But it can be years and years until it gets to that point. Well, let's step back for just a minute because I'd like to talk about one of the interesting parts about this book is the approach to what evil is. Most of the time when we think about evil, um, you know, we think about it in, in mythological or moralistic terms. And this scientific or naturalistic approach, as he likes to call it, um, is just a different perspective. I mean, as a psychologist, they were able to quantify what they called evil in terms of these um, psychological disorders. So, you know, it just it creates an, a different kind of perspective on what evil is. I mean, he, he really tries to define it as a reality in the world and then open people's minds to the fact that this does have uh, this certain uh, psychological pathology has a lot of influence over our society. Yeah, the, he, he kind of takes an approach similar to one that uh, Philip Zimbardo takes on evil. He's the guy, the Stanford Prison Experiment guy. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect. And his approach to evil and several other um, like contemporary authors who have written on evil, um, yeah, they don't really take a, a mythological or, or a theological approach. They basically just define it in, in common sense, everyday human terms. Um, there are certain things that most people will agree are evil, just based on that moralistic reaction. Like, and and the one that pretty much every culture, every every normal human agrees on, would be something like child abuse, um, or I mean, like like torture or sexual abuse of a child. That's the kind of thing that's almost universally accepted as evil. And when we just get into the more 
generalities of what we as humans consider evil, it seems to be that uh, that, that, that people agree that there you know there there are these certain similarities and uh, and generalities. Like um, evil is just all of the all of the harm that's done to another person intentionally or or not intentionally. But if we look at wars, um, you know, mass murders, um, the Holocaust, like these are things that people will generally agree are evil, even though they might, when when speaking in like philosophical terms, disagree with the use of the word. But what the what Wobuchevsky and these other scientists were doing is basically just saying, okay, well, well, this is what we as humans experience as evil. What really is that? And so, by analyzing all of um, like all the people in their milieu that they could, so Wobuchevsky um, did his study initially on the the group of people that came in and out of the hospital that he was working at. And what he found was that pretty much, like, a really high percentage, like, I can't remember what it was, 99 or 98% of the people who had caused some, like, some serious harm to another person, whether psychological or physical, there was always some sort of psychopathology involved. And that could have been that they themselves suffered from a, a personality disorder, or that they were involved with someone else with a personality disorder, and that kind of had this uh, this functional effect on them, like the effect of being raised by a pers- like by a borderline personality mother or father. It's like the- those kind of early childhood experiences have the effect of of kind of synchronizing the brain to that way of thinking and behaving. And so, while a child might not be born with a certain um, like personality type, then it it's kind of acquired functionally, um, based like kind of just like Pavlonian conditioning. It's just mm-hmm. they get conditioned to certain stereotype ways of thinking, feeling, and acting, and that continues the cycle. It's like the you could put it in theological terms and kind of say it's the sins of the father passed on to the son. Is that they continue the cycle of pathology started by their parents, you know, which could have been started by their parents. But what it really comes down to is that at the at the center of all these hubs of of harm and and what we might call evil actions to others, we always find at the root of that um, a type of pathology, of psychopathology. Yeah. And I just I want to go back for a second too and describe uh, exactly the fact that this is the third time that uh, Andrew had to write this book. The first time it got uh, it burned in a fire because the secret police were coming to take it away. <laughs> yeah. And then the second time he tried to smuggle it out and it disappeared. And finally he had to write a third copy, which he gave to Zbigniew Brzezinski, and then he tried to bury it as well. Mm-hmm. So finally he found you all at the Red Pill Press. And you were willing to pick it up for him? Yeah, when we first uh, came across it, that, that's something that um, that we'd been interested in, and we were kind of taking a similar approach, um, not to the same, um, not in the same amount of detail that he'd taken it, but enough that we could see at, at like right at the beginning. Okay, wow, this is something that 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 we know from our past research is really that he's really onto something. And so, reading the whole book, it just made so many things clear and put so many things into perspective in a way that um, I don't think anyone else has done. 
um, in at least the scientific community in the West. Um, there's nothing like it in the in the literature of the time. And um, going back to what you said about the three copies, um, yeah, the first one he he did have to burn it um, because he was warned about the, a secret police raid on his house. And if they would have found it, like uh, I want to make clear that this type of research was strictly forbidden um, in Poland and Czechoslovakia and Hungary and these these countries. If anyone was caught with this, these kind of materials, uh, first of all, they'd be arrested, tortured, probably disappeared and killed. And... Um, so the way they had to conduct this research was in the strict, what he called a strict conspiracy. And so this was a conspiracy of the, the oppressed, basically, the people that, that were living under this system. And they, a lot of times the, the researchers themselves didn't even, they didn't even know each other's names. They passed on their research anonymously through various um, people that... Uh, like certain scientists, retired scientists, that would pass on the information between them, because if any one of them was caught and and tortured, they would be able to give up the whole group, basically. So they were living in extremely hard times and taking great risks to be able to do this. And Wobachevsky himself, while he was never um, caught with, uh, with these materials, he was arrested three times um, and tortured. And you'd, I've read some some uh, memoirs and things like that of people living in these countries where they, they say pretty much everyone was arrested at some point or another. And so Wobachevsky was just, that was kind of par for the course at that time. Um, but he was, he was tortured um, a few times. And the fourth time that he was arrested, that was when they gave him the option of either they were either going to keep him in prison or he could... Um, go to the states with nothing, so they confiscated all of his all his books and papers, all the research that he'd amassed until that time. Basically, sent him to the United States with nothing, so he was free in one sense. But then, very soon, found out that any scientist that left the country was closely followed, um, and their actions, like their movements, were basically watched by um, agents of the secret police. And so, he had a few encounters with. And that's in the United States. That was in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the way they the way they did it was they had contacts with all of the American communist group, communist groups. The thing was is that the American communist groups really had no idea what the true nature of the systems, the actual systems of government, um, what what that nature was. They didn't really know what was going on. So so they had you know relations and uh, communications with. Um, the Eastern Communist countries, but the the communist governments and secret police agencies basically just used them. And so in New York, um, by the secret police activating their their contacts in in, in New York, um, they made it so that Wobachevsky couldn't get a job in his profession. He had to become a factory worker um, when, you know, he was a, a doctor. He was a psychiatrist and a psychologist, and, um, and he couldn't find work because... They, they wanted to make his life difficult, and they did. All right, let me take a second to uh, take a station break here. It's 9.22. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKinty, speaking this morning with Harrison Cayley uh, of the Red Pill Press. We're talking about the book Political Ponerology by Andrew uh, Labazewski. <laughs> the names are giving me trouble this morning. 
Um, so let's get down uh, again to the meat of the book and talk about a psychopathy. Most of us, I think, feel like uh, when we think about a psychopath, then we're thinking about serial killers and sort of these insane individuals on the very fringe of society. But what uh, Andrew and the rest of the, psych the psychologists in Poland found out is that it's a little bit more common than that. And a lot of these people kind of uh, hide in plain sight. Can you talk about uh, like the percentages of psychopathy that we find in populations? Yeah, before I get to the, the actual percentages, I'll just uh, go on a little bit of what you said. Just the example of serial killers. Now, that's, of course, the first image that comes to mind uh, for a lot of people when they hear, hear the word psychopath. Um, now, while most serial killers are psychopaths, the vast majority of psychopaths aren't serial killers. And uh, serial, serial killers are actually a very, very rare phenomenon. Like, um, while there are a certain number operating at any time, compared to, compared to the you know, population studies, um, yeah, they're a tiny, tiny percentage. And the, so the vast majority of psychopaths um, are, you, you wouldn't be able to recognize them on the street. Mm -hmm. and, well, that's, and that's actually, um, I, I, there's a really good paper that was published recently on the, the subject. Um, they call, the psychologists call it um, subcriminal or successful psychopathy. And what that basically means is that most psychopaths that um, are studied and known are the ones in prison. So they're the ones that, you know, have um, high recidivism rates. They're the criminals. Um, they, they basically, they're the ones in and out of institutions, um, psychiatric wards and prisons. Um, but just as an aside, um, I mentioned you wouldn't be able to recognize a psychopath. Um, psychopaths, they're not... Um, Psychotic wouldn't be a good word for them. Um, they have, because uh, a psychotic person has, is totally out of touch with reality. Um, their their own basically fantasies get projected out into the world. They they have no no ability to react with reality in a you know in a in a normal way. But psychopaths are considered completely sane in the sense that um, they they appear more normal than normal. They are successful, um, likable, charming. Um, the psychopath is really, um, really more normal than normal. At least that's the way they appear. Um, well, one of the, one of the things that I read in the book that he was talking about was I, I think one of the the main characteristics of the psychopathy is that they just they don't they don't really care about what other people think about them or what their effects have they don't have this emotional relationship and that and that kind of gives them the ability to have free reign to act like who you know whoever they want to act like they can act like you know rock stars or actors or they can say whatever they want and they feel comfortable and it gives them this kind of confidence that they can present yeah and a total they're totally calm under pressure because, yeah, they don't really, they don't really care. Mm -hmm. If they're lying about something and you, they get called on a lie, they feel no inner anxiety or nervousness or guilt. So they'll just come up with another lie or they just shrug it off. And, and, but really, you, you nailed the heart, the, the heart of the matter. The, the essential feature of, psycho, of psychopaths is that they don't feel the, the breadth of emotion that normal humans do. They don't feel anything that can be properly be called an emotion. They may feel like a, a rush of adrenaline or um, or a, a sexual urge, but they don't feel anything more than that. Their emotion is completely dull and on this 
kind of um, plane. It's this. It's this single. This um, how do I say it? Kind of like a, a single layer or or story. Whereas a normal human would have ups and downs, and it's very rich and multi-layered, multi-leveled. And so, for a psychopath, they they go through the they go through life, you know, on this single level of of feeling, which is basically nothing. And because of that, yeah, you're right. They're able to to put on and play any role that they need to play in a situation. So that's why they're such good manipulators. Is that they can from from as soon as they were learning to talk, they've been learning how to how to put on displays of emotion. And that's one of the things that uh, Robert Hare, who's one of the, um, he's a Canadian and probably the expert on psychopathy these days in in North America. And he gives an example um, in his book, Without Conscience, I believe, or it might have been within, in an interview with him. But he said that he was working with a, a Hollywood star. Um, they'd come to him um, to help her with her character because she was playing a psychopath. And he gave her the example of um, just to kind of get into the mindset and to see what these people are actually like. He gave her the the situation that uh, she's walking down the street and she sees there's been a car accident, and so she walks up because she's curious to see what had happened. And it had been a car accident with a, a mother and her child, and the child had died in the accident. And so there's the mother outside of the car. They're both bloody, and the mother is just you know in grief, crying, and um, you know inconsolable. And so the psychopath just kind of watches that and observes it and then goes upstairs to their room in their apartment in front of the mirror and then tries to tries to mimic those facial expressions that the that the mum was using. And and it's just this really creepy image mm-hmm. because that's essentially the inner landscape of a psychopath. There's really nothing there that can be properly be called human. In the in that emotional sense, they they have no no comprehension and no empathy with that emotional component. They don't they don't feel that kind of grief. But when they see it, they realize that there's some kind of situation where it'll be necessary to appear as if they do have the ability to feel that grief. So they practice it, and so from a very early age, they're practicing these emotions to the point where you can't you can't spot them. Like they will appear to give all the same reactions as as a normal person because they've practiced it. They're great actors, and so that's why you know a lot of them become great politicians. Getting back to the theme of the book mm-hmm. is that psychopaths they um, they they have this kind of hunger for power over others uh, and this hunger for basically they they basically feed off of others. Um, through their manipulations, and they use other people, and so with this, with this, um, like inner hunger for authority and power, they and their ability to manipulate, they very easily get into corporations or groups or you know political groups or uh, political parties and rise to the top. Mm-hmm. And they're very charming, very inf- they're very good at influencing people, and so in any it's it's almost a a given that in any country it doesn't have measures in place to prevent psychopaths from gaining power, and that would be every country because because no country has measures like that. Then there are going to be psychopaths in these governments in influential positions of power, making decisions, and 
and that, that gets into all of the corruption that we see in governments around the world. That's the root of it, is that uh, it's this, this opening that's, pro- that's provided by an ignorance about the topic, and then once that opening is there, the psychopaths go in, and then that's when the, this kind of infection spreads. And that's why the word poneros was used for the for for the for ponderology, because it's a type of evil that is corrupting an influence. So it's not just an evil thing out there, it's something that spreads. And that's what we see when these these uh, power structures come into come into um, like crystallization that they that power starts at the top and it spreads all the way down and it creates this this kind of um, unbreakable structure that you know it's only a matter of it, and it's only after a period of time that it's even able to be broken because because things reach a point as I said before where the people realize that it's gone too far and something needs to be done and then that often means that there's bloodshed because these people in power don't want to give up their power. Yeah, one of the things I was reminded of, I don't know if you've seen the documentary The Corporation, but one of the uh, one of the theses of that documentary was that corporations, if they're analyzed like human beings, if they were psychoanalyzed, then the corporations would be psych- psychotic. Um, you know, they act without feeling, they act only for profit, they don't care about the destruction they do to the environment. Um, and this has to come from somewhere. Like, why did what human beings created a, a psychotic corporation except for maybe psychotic individuals that somehow... Uh, got uh, got into those positions of power. Exactly. I just want to quickly make a correction that, uh, like I said, it's not psychotic individuals; it's psychopathic right. individuals. Got it. Um, and but yeah, you're right. I have seen the documentary, and it's it's great, and that is a that is a really important um, connection to make because yeah, um, no, people people who aren't psychopaths. Don't make psychopathic corporations or, or right. entire system of of, uh, of psychopathy. That's uh, it, that's that's a totally illogical way of, uh, of of thinking about it. And unfortunately, that's the way most people see it because they don't understand about psychopathy. They think that that it's just you know some some weird thing that you know gets introduced into the equation somehow, but they don't know how. So so it's just you know some kind of anomaly. But really, it's psychopathy comes from psychopathy. And that's that's really as, as simple as it as it can be. And um, there's just one thing um, I want to share about um, how this all happens and, and why it happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been re- doing a little bit of reading lately on hunter gatherer uh, communities and societies. And one of the things that's really striking about the the research that's been, that's been done is that. Um, these groups, these small communities, um, when you look at leadership and power in these communities, the way it plays out is that it's the community that basically elects a person to be uh, a chief or an elder or a leader. And it's, but the thing is, is that it's the community's choice and the, the prospective leader basically has no choice in the matter. They choose him even if he doesn't want to be. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that anyone who expresses an interest in becoming a leader is automatically disqualified from becoming a leader. Right. <laughs> because, because they recognize that the, the type of people that want to become leaders will be bad leaders because they're in it for themselves and they're in it for that prestige and that power. And so 
the the hunter gatherers the hunter gatherer uh, societies they had this kind of knowledge, and they might not have had specific names for every process, like you know, like we do in our modern scientific worldview. But they they had this experiential, practical knowledge, and so whenever and they also had a pretty rigid but fair um, moral uh, moral code, basically. So so if people weren't um, fulfilling what was expected of them, just in a, in a community sense, if they um, introduced, like, um, violence and lying and all of these, and, and all of the things that, we, that we're just so used to in our culture, um, they would be, first of all, made fun of and socially shunned, and so they'd be kind of excluded from the community. And that, act, that kind of um, group decision and um, just that, that social pressure to, to, to actually be a decent human being keeps, the, keeps the, the society healthy. But the thing is, is that in our society, we've lost all of that to the point where, uh, well, first of all, we live in big cities. Big cities are breeding grounds for psychopaths because there's, an, there's anonymity in big cities. Mm-hmm. They can just go from victim to victim and never be caught because as soon as they've basically... Um, you know, used up their food source. You know, there's there's no more animals in this area of the country to to feed on. They can go to another one, and so not only is there that, um, we don't we've normalized pathology to a great extent to to the point where you know it, in all the reality TV shows that are on these uh, the people that the people on these shows just show a remarkable degree of social and psychological pathology and it's just seen as normal um all of the lying deception and um putting one over on others and you know stepping on others to get ahead and it's this really um like it 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 really goes against what what is human in us it's it's um and I, I just find it uh, very like fascinating, remarkable, and depressing at the same time to watch how this plays out, and how because we've lost touch with this knowledge of kind of what it means to be human and how to how to keep our own humanity, then we let in these these kind of social um, social viruses that take over and end up having severe consequences. It's what leads to wars and. Well, and what do we have these days? We've got what the American government is calling and has called um, an endless war, total warfare, uh, war with no end in sight. We've got wars. We've got um, social repression. We've got you know everything that's happening in Wisconsin. We've got um, surveillance, mass surveillance of civilian populate, populations. We've still got COINTELPRO operations going. And it's just the list is endless of the the amount of just social disease, and and people don't see the root cause of it. And if they did see the root cause of it, that's the first place. That's the first step to take in um, you know corrective measures. Right. And well, that's what. Or, or go on. 
Well, just one of the interesting things that I discovered in the research, while while most uh, of the people doing research in this area uh, were like you, uh, just saying that we need to point this out and then correct it, some some researchers actually said it was a, a an evolutionary advantage that these people may be, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, higher up on the ladder, as it were, and that's why you know they get these positions. You know, just interesting though that going back to what you were talking about, kind of the normalization of the pathology, and then even the acceptance by some research that maybe it should be this way. Yeah, and you know that could be that could be one of two things in my mind. Um, it could either be that normalization of pathology, you know, to the extent where where people just see this as, oh, you know, hey, that maybe this is just the the way things are, and maybe they're they're evolutionary evolutionarily higher than we are, and that's just the next step. Um, or it could be that the people espousing these viewpoints are themselves. Um, either psychopaths or or of some different personality disorder, because that's one of the things that that um, that Wobachevsky really makes clear in the book is that these aren't just theoretical constructs. Um, it's not like they're these abstract ideas of, of pathology. These are real people that have influence in the real world. They're scientists and doctors and politicians and um, you know mayors and police officers and teachers. Um, these are just these are people in every every field of life, and um, but for the most part, because we don't know anything about psychology, like as a culture, um, we don't see them. So so when a um, an academic or someone or comes out saying what really should be just called ridiculous things, um, we we take them seriously. So that's why you know we get um, economics professors who come up with these insane ideas about what humans are like and how and and because humans are like this then um economies need to be structured this way um we get these insane ideas that we just take as being true you know in theory when you know in practice they're totally false mm-hmm. and that's where we get things like uh John Nash's game theory where the idea is that the humans in essence are just all trying to put one over on one another they're all um playing this game, which Nash called Screw You, Buddy. He used another word for it, but it's where, um, you know, in a game, uh, you've got this economic game, so you can each, you're two prisoners, and you've, you're each promised a certain amount of money if you confess, or if, or, or if the other person confesses and, and you don't, or if you um, rat out the other guy and he rats you out, and so there's these various combinations, but the way it works out is that um, the most beneficial, um, basically, if you play your odds right, and it, it works out so that you both screw each other over, and um, you both get a little bit of money. But if you if you um, don't say anything, um, and the other person um, rats you out, then he gets a whole bunch of money, and you get or no, that's not quite right. But but anyways, the way it plays out is that it. It's better for you to um, rat out your your friend than to just say nothing. But in practice, when they actually did this test with you know actual humans, the only pr- people that chose that choice were the economists and psychopaths. Yeah, huh. when they did it when they did it with the the professors' wives and just normal humans, they all took the the mutually beneficial one where they both um, they both uh, cooperated. Right. 
And that's the normal, yeah, that's the normal human response is to cooperate. But we have these entire systems of government and economics that are based on this idea that it's a dog-eat-dog world and everyone's just trying to screw the other person right. and try to see how the other person is trying to manipulate me. And it's this really paranoid worldview that then gets projected, you know, onto all of society. And that's how psychopaths think. Like, the system works like a psychopath thinks, and then the rest of us has to, you know, kind of fall, fall in line. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even that's, though that's, most of us yeah. don't think that way at all. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it, is that the system, the system works as if, you know, based on what a psychopath thinks. And that's the way politics works. That's the way elections work and foreign policy. It's, it's all of these game theories of the psychopathic mind, this dog-eat-dog world. And if we had real humans, like, with empathy and compassion in positions of power, the world would be a totally different place. But whenever a person like that gets into power, what happens? Yeah, they get destroyed by the, by the, the psychopaths. Uh-huh. All right, I need to take a second. It's 9.43. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. I'm your host, Doug McKinty. I'm speaking with Harrison Cayley this morning of the Red Pill Press. We're talking about political ponderology, the book by Andrew Lobozowski. Uh And I want to really quickly just kind of um, talk about the difference between the micro-social then and the macro-social, how uh, the psychopaths, which is a, a micro, you know, it happens in individuals, uh, but then it grows into uh, what they call um, this pathocracy, which is when, when this uh, cabal of these kinds of people get into positions of power. Uh, they, they, they made the word pathocracy for it to describe what happens when these corrupt individuals get into that place. But uh, one of the interesting things was uh, in the book, it was described that, that these um, psychopaths can spot each other out in a crowd. Like they end up kind of grouping together and you, and you get a sort of cabal of people that are working together against the people. And then this group rises to the top. I, I kind of, just in my mind, it reminds me of, of the neocons in the American government. Uh, I don't think most Americans even know what neocons think, and yet their political philosophy controls uh, much of our foreign policy and domestic policy in this country. Um, and how, you know, how do those kinds of ideas get there uh, when they're not uh, most people don't even know, you know, about it. Anyway, can you describe that process a little bit? Yeah, well, the, he uses the words microsocial and macrosocial. So the microsocial would just be the, the kind of interpersonal interactions. Um, the, so that you could take um, a, uh, a relationship between uh, a man and wife. And if the man's psychopathic, there are certain things that he's going to do, certain effects that he's going to have on his wife. And there's a great book written on the subject uh, called Women Who Love Psychopaths by Sandra Brown. And she really gets into all those details. But when you get into the, the, the idea is basically, um, it's kind of um, esoteric, um, the, the as above, so below. It's that on that level, um, it's the same on both levels. So those effects on an interpersonal level get translated um, to, to um, social levels, macro-social levels. So you see the same kind of um, effects and causes um, but played out on a just in a much in a much bigger sphere. So um, as the, so the way that this happens, the way that this is able to play itself out, um, like you say in the book, Wobuchewski describes how these people basically form a cabal, and what it really is is just a group of people with the same interests. 
And that's what any conspiracy is, whether it's a, a conspiracy of the type that Lobachevsky and his colleagues had to had to engage in, or whether it's a conspiracy to take over a country and and essentially and eventually, in their minds, rule the world, which is basically what any uh, imperial fascist totalitarian group wants. Um, well, and, and, and this is delusional too. I mean, these people are delusional, really. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, yeah, they're delusional. They have, uh, they can't see the the kind of insanity of their ideas and how things will actually play out. But they they do them anyway because they have no insight into these things. So so they really think that they'll they'll just uh, they'll just take over the world and 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 eventually um, you know everything will be all right with them because because they can't see that it, it's kind of this weird paradox how. They can they see other people as suckers and marks for for their con game, but at the same time they they assume that everyone's like them. They can't really conceive of what that difference entails. So so they've got this um, this this mutual these mutual interests among themselves. They all know what they want. Um, now, of course, they're perfectly willing to to screw over their colleagues to get there. So that's what you see in, in, in corrupt governments is, you know, e- even then you see there's constant infighting and you find that in the, in the Soviet purges in um, the, you know, all the entries behind the scenes in the Nazi regime, um, you know, where um, at, at first you start out as, as this tightly knit group, but then, you know, one person gets a little bit paranoid about this other person. So, so he uses the, the, the pawns that he's developed to take out this other guy. And so they, they, Robachevsky talks about a war on two fronts. I'd say that there's a war on three fronts for, for these people. There's the external enemies that they fight. These are the external enemies that they either create or exploit. Right. Um, in the modern day, it would be Muslim, so-called Muslim terrorism. Um, it was, you know, it was the, the, commun- the communist threat for the, uh, or anarchy or, um, you know, capitalists depending on which which group you're in and then there's the internal threat which is just basically the the population the your own population because the the biggest threat to a um, to a pathocracy is their own people because um, the the two are at odds they don't have the same interests so and then there's the third I'd say the the the, the third front and that's the you know the, the, their own colleagues in the government it's they're the ones they've always got to be watching their back and pr- mm-hmm. protecting their position and for them it really is a doggy dog world on every level all right well we've got about 11 minutes left in the program i'd like to get a few calls in eight nine five two four four eight we'll get you in the studio if you have a question for my guest and i'll just take a call we've got some people that are interested in asking a question uh, good morning. You're on the Thursday Morning Report. Yes, good morning. Fascinating topic. Thanks. Um, let me point out, I think it was the spiritual teacher, Krishnamurti, who once said, there's nothing healthy about being well-adjusted to a sick society. Right. Um, anyway, um, I'd like you, uh, your guest, to talk about the disconnect between hundreds of millions of people who claim to be followers of a teacher who taught love thy neighbor, turn the other cheek, treat the poor uh, better than the rich, all of those things uh, that the Christians pay lip service to and yet live and support a culture that does the very opposite. Could you talk about that disconnect? Thanks a lot. Yeah, great question. Thanks. Yeah, um, 
Wobachevsky in the book actually gets into that phenomenon uh, in a lot of detail, and he puts it in psychological terms. Um, what yeah. he can I just say really quickly, he, d he does discuss that he is a Christian and that he felt himself to be at odds between his faith and then this scientific uh, 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 ponerology that he was developing. But then he thought, actually, there, there is no at odds here um, because the, there are two different ways of thinking, but that religious institutions can get affected by the same kind of uh, pathocracy. So, so go ahead and, and describe that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, that he saw that, yeah, these processes play themselves out in religious groups as well, and probably, if we look at our history, probably primarily in religious groups, because uh, religion and, and government were tied in a very intimate way for a very long time of our history. But the, the way this plays out is that um, uh, at the beginning of the show, I talked about the effect a psychopath has on a normal person. Now, one of those effects is that you start, you, you start losing the ability to think clearly, you end up living in this foggy mental world um, where you really can't make sense of anything. It really has a, a negative effect on people's ability to think. And so what you, have, what you get is you, you end up getting these, um, uh, what Wobachevsky calls uh, conversive or uh, paralogical think, thought processes. And what that basically amounts to, you know, minus the scientific terminology, is um, the, what's commonly called double talk or double think um, in you know Orwellian terms it's the it's this ability to hold two completely uh, two thoughts completely at odds with one another in in the, in your head at the same time and the way this works is that um, it's all got to do with what you're what you're willing to admit to yourself about what you believe and about what's going on now most people are when confronted with uh, a difficult truth, that hurts in a sense. It, it actually physically hurts your brain. There have been studies that, do, that show that you know when you're confronted with something that goes against uh, a deeply held belief, it hurts. And so what happens is the, the mind kind of tries to make all of these um, rationalizations and it goes back to these thought processes and kind of, kind of like uh, the thought police in, the, or not, not the thought police, but the, the Ministry of Truth in, uh, in 1984, in your mind, your mind goes back and kind of removes essential information and ignores others in order to make this this um, illogical thought process seem logical. So that's what, that's how you get people in denial. That's how you get um, like hypocrisy that people can't really see themselves. These people can't see it. So yeah, on the one hand they'll profess to be uh, Christians. On the other hand, they'll they'll buy into this system that's totally anti-Christian if you look at, at Christianity from that, you know, other definition. And you, it, it just, um, you get this, just, yeah, this complete disconnect. And it's, it's hard to, to really make sense of because it's, it's just, it's so strange when you're looking at someone else's illogical thought processes because for them, there's no contradiction whatsoever. They just can't see it. And another big part of this um, I just suggest a book to read. Um, it's for free on the internet. It's called The Authoritarians by Robert Altemeyer. Um, if you just search The Authoritarians or, or Authoritarianism online, um, you should be able to find it. Um, he's got it for free on his website. And he gets into this uh, authoritarian mindset and how all of these like inner contradictions are possible. And uh, I just recommend that as a book to read on the subject. All right, very good. Uh, about seven minutes left in the program. I think we have time for one more call. So, 
Good morning. You're on the Thursday morning report. Hey, this is great. I'm glad I finally got through. Thanks. Um, yeah, this, this sounds a lot like uh, Richard Nixon, um, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, King George the first and second, and the present uh, president that we have uh, in control of what they seem to be in control of. And I'm kind of curious about how does that relate to getting down to um, the politics of, of, of a local radio station and and all this stuff is just uh, it's it's been blowing my mind to the fact that uh, the the psychopathic control trip and not seeing anything except for what they want to see or what they think or who it is or what but it seems to be like a local radio station is you know pretty much on that same level and um, I'll listen on the air all right. Very good. Uh, why don't we talk about that on uh, on sm- um, you know smaller levels uh, in smaller companies? Do you get the same kind of pathocracy? I think it could probably happen at any level. Yeah, and uh, you you do find this kind of thing. This is where we get to the the whole microcosm macrocosm idea, mm-hmm. um, where uh, and you read about these things in the papers all the time. Um, I just in one in an article I was just working on. Uh, writing, I, I used one example of, um, now I can't remember the exact details, but um, just about a year or two ago, there was a, um, an employee at a, at a journal at a university, so it was kind of like a, a newspaper journal uh, for the university, and he was an editor, and he ended up committing suicide because of what he said was the extreme harassment he received from his boss. And so what the, the the picture that was kind of painted by the by the witnesses and by his friends and by himself when he had written about all this stuff was that this boss had basically created this nightmare situation in this workplace for this guy and i think it's a, a situation that gets translated into many corporations and businesses where now i'm not not saying every business or corporation is like this because um for sure you'll you'll be able to find um, companies with you know great uh, great structures and great bosses and they really make things work. But on the other hand, I, yeah, from my experience and from the experiences I hear from people, I'd say most of them are um, either they just you know buy into this whole system and they don't make any effort to try to do anything differently, or they are these microcosms where they are um, these living nightmares for the people working at these places because it's all about profits. There's uh, no no concern for the workers' humanity or their well-being. It's just they're just tools. They're just uh, they're just pawns in this scheme to make money, and that's basically the bottom line: is that it just comes down to making money. And so, when that is your goal, and and when that's a and so you see that in corporations, when that is the end, then usually it, it ends up that uh, any means any means by any means necessary that end you know that's how they'll do it. Mm-hmm. And um, so you so. Um, I, I I was talking to my sister the other day, and we were talking about uh, food and pharmaceuticals. And I basically said to her, whenever you have any any kind of um, corporation or or business that takes something that's like essential to life and then turns it into a, a money making scheme, it will it becomes that it becomes a money making scheme to the point where instead of producing you know good wholesome foods, you start cutting corners and doing anything possible. To make the to make your product make you money, and but with no regard for the actual 
for your actual product and the people that are that are buying it, it becomes this. And the same thing with the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical industry, it becomes this money making scheme where you basically create hundreds and thousands of new drugs, um, don't adequately test them, and when you do test them, you get your buddy uh, buddy labs to do it and write favorable favorable reports for you. And then you introduce all these potentially harmful drugs onto the market that make you millions and billions of dollars, and then you do it again and again and again. Right, and they don't necessarily even cure the disease. They just, oh. you know, they just get you hooked on a drug for the rest of your life. Exactly, and it's yeah, it's just this, it's just this massive uh, money making scheme, and it's just it's like a, that, and that's what these all all are. There are these con acts, these con games, because. That's essentially what psychopaths are. Is they're they're con artists, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll con you in any in any field, um, like so in the food industry, pharmaceuticals, oil industries, politics, corporations. It's like everything. Uh, everything will turn into a con game, and that's uh, so. Just a prime example is Bernie Madoff um, in the you know economic world. Um, I wrote a paper on uh, it's uh, just on about thirty seconds left, so. Okay, well then, um, if, just really quickly, if I could say, um, if you want to, if the listeners want to find out more, you can go to ponerology.com. That's the website for the book. That's spelled P-O-N-E-R-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Or visit um, the, our website, redpillpress.com. That's redpillpress, is in R-E-D-P-I-L-L-P-R-E-S-S.com. Or you can read um, my articles as well as the articles of several others on these topics at the Alternative News website, SOT.net, S-O-T-T dot N-E-T. All right, very good. Yeah, we're going to have to wrap it up. But thanks for being on the show, everyone. That was Harrison Cayley of the Red Pill Press. We've been discussing political ponderology by Andrew Lubzewski. Uh, and I want to thank everybody for listening and those of you who called up and added to the program. You've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX 90.7 FM, Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM, Willits and Ukiah, 88.1 FM, Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio, streaming on the web at kzyx.org. The-